Do you recommend um, both doses of the new uh, varicella vaccine in patients who've received the old vaccine and have had a mild case of shingles. the shingles? So I do. Um, so shingles does not recur that often, but it can recur. And so, for example, if you see somebody who had the old vaccine and had a mild shingles case, because that old vaccine, remember, was only effective in the first couple of years, it then started to wear off, they are at risk of getting it again in their lifetime. Uh, so I would, yes, I would recommend it for them. They're often very enthusiastic about getting the vaccine, too. Um, a, patient, a number of patients wrote in questions about what to prescribe and when to prescribe antivirals for people with suspected influenza. Okay. Can you just talk a little bit about what's the appropriate use uh, for suspected cases, people we haven't tested but they've called up, they're sick, what comorbidities should we test, uh, treat, and which drugs should we use? Okay. Great, great questions. They are the great questions. So first, assume it's flu season, and we know it's flu season yes. because typically happens from you know late November to March, mm -hmm. and it peaks at various times this year. Flu season's peaking right around now. Um, so when flu is circulating and people call you with that history, some of us are comfortable actually prescribing antiviral therapy over the telephone. Mm -hmm. And I think that is defensible as long as people know what to watch out for, and, and then they can come in and be evaluated otherwise. Um, so. The populations we target are people with risk factors for severe influenza. They are obesity, cardiopulmonary disease, pregnancy, immunocompromised, diabetics. Those are the major ones. Not, not asthma or COPD? Cardiopulmonary disease. Cardiopulmonary Cardio disease. Cardiac disease, pulmonary disease. I, sorry, I said cardiopulmonary disease. That's Often they do go terrible. together. Mm -hmm. Those are definitely people you, would you want them on antiviral therapy sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. How soon does it need to be? It's better if it's given within 48 hours, but even after 48 hours for people with those risk factors, it appears to help. Great paper recently in The Lancet that looked at the potential benefits of antiviral therapy and influenza, oseltamivir now, and it showed that the people with risk factors, even if they got oseltamivir after 48 hours of illness, they still benefited quite a bit from the antiviral therapy. They've benefited the most. Because obviously people who don't have risk factors, a lot of them just get over the flu. Nothing. So, yeah. As far as the new drug, the new drug is baloxavir. Baloxavir and oseltamivir are similarly effective. Baloxavir has an FDA indication for these high-risk people, but oseltamivir, you can use them as well. It is one dose, so rather than giving oseltamivir one pill twice a day for five days, you can give baloxavir times one dose. It is a bit more expensive, but it's not a lot more expensive. The one that's really expensive is paramavir, and that's the IV version. You wouldn't need to deal that. with that. Okay, yeah. So, And um, for those who don't have a comorbidity that increases yeah. their risk, um, I have a question about elderberry and pelargonium. Um. Yeah, I know. I. I, I, we, we actually had someone talk a little bit about this in Boston. Yes, my own, my own opinion is that these supplements have not been rigorously studied in scientific studies. Most of them have not. And the quality control on the supplements is quite variable. And a few years ago, someone did an echinacea analysis and found that echinacea products, um, you know, some of them had like no echinacea in them. Some of them had a lot of echinacea in them. What's the dose? How long do you take? No one knows any of this stuff. There are so many unknowns that I don't typically recommend them. If people are finding them helpful and they're not harmful, uh, I don't generally stop 
them from doing so. <laughs> Sometimes in primary care, yes, we, we, we kind of feel like, well, this is something you can do besides avoiding others. Is <laughs> coronavirus spread by oral fecal transmission? Is diarrhea an early symptom? So there have been GI symptoms associated with coronavirus as well as uh, there was with SARS. And they've already had <coughs> patients with coronavirus infection in whom they've been able to uh, PCR positive their stool samples. So undoubtedly it is in, once a person gets really sick with this, it's in multiple secretions. Mm -hmm. We think the predominant way it's spread That's is spread like colds, mm -hmm. which is that it's close contact with someone from a respiratory standpoint or you've touched the surface that has coronavirus on and then you've inoculated yourself. Those are the primary ways. You know, so, so you know, I play poker every two weeks and you know, I'm a really fun guy to play poker with. I bet you okay. are. So, <laughs> because when people have colds, it's like, we don't want you playing with us right. because touching the cards and passing the cards around is a great way to spread colds. And it was so, such a good way that they actually have done studies of cold transmission using card players as a model for cold transmission. So if you have coronavirus, no poker for you. That gives a whole <laughs> new meaning to going cold when you're gambling. Very good. Um, a couple of questions about why the anti-vaccine campaign seems to be so successful now. And one person wrote, do you feel that direct-to-consumer advertising of the antivirals has made people less apt to get the flu? Any thoughts generally and specifically? Yeah, I think the flu vaccine has a, has a uh, it's, it's got a very bad reputation. Uh, and, and some of that is justifiable. You know, it's not nearly as effective as the measles vaccine, for example. Like, look at what happened in Samoa. This terrible outbreak, just a blip completely stopped by putting measles vaccine back in, back in people. The flu vaccine is in a good year, 60% effective. In a bad year, 20 to 30% effective. You have to get it done every year. I mean, the analogy I often use is like, it's like getting your car inspected. It's like, oh, again, you know. Yeah, um, it, it's, uh, and a lot of people don't get the flu every year. So since they don't get the flu every year, they feel like, oh, I'm not at risk. I mean, I, th there are so many different excuses people have for not getting the flu. One is, I never get the flu. Have you heard that one? Yeah. The other one I hear is, it gives uh, me the flu. Yes, we know. Hear that, that one? Well. Yes. Yeah, well, you know, it obviously doesn't give people, but these things are so ingrained in people, uh, it's very hard to talk. The way I try to get people to get the flu vaccine is I explain that even though it doesn't always work, evidence is pretty good, it makes the disease milder, okay? And the other thing is that I get it, and all of my colleagues get it, and all the nurses I work with get it, we're all getting this vaccine. You should join us. You know, this is this, I, we're tried, modeling this behavior. I've tried getting the flu vaccine correlates with, with you being smarter, <laughs> which implies not getting it correlates with you being dumber. Um, can you please go over again why a mask is not protective for uh, respiratory viruses? For respiratory vi uh, so it turns out that, that, that if there's a lot of virus coming your way and you have a mask, you might be able to reduce some of the exposure, but you have to breathe around the mask. Uh, and because you're breathing around the mask, you still can inhale viral particles. It might help you also keeping you from touching your face or your eyes. That might be beneficial. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that the people who study infection control say once a mask is wet or worn once, it has almost no protective activity at all. So it's, it's 
what it does is, let me repeat what I said before, mm -hmm. if someone has a cold or a respiratory illness and they wear a mask, they are much less likely to spray virus uh, out to other people. That's where it really helps. That's why we have our medical assistants put the mask on the patients immediately when they arrive in our office. Uh, okay. <laughs> Um, you mentioned an increase, I believe it said, in clindamycin resistance. resistance. Yeah. How did we get there? Bad news. Uh, clindamycin is a drug with one horrible side effect, right. which is this high risk of C. diff, but otherwise is very effective, uh, and it's really effective against streptococcal infections in particular. But both for staph and for strep, the rates of clindamycin resistance have been escalating each year, and people haven't been talking about it much, but when we look at our antibiogram in our hospital, it's really striking. And one area where it's particularly important is for staff. So MRSA now, as I mentioned, 40% uh, of our MRSA are clindamycin resistance. The other one is in um, pregnancy. So group B strep. Group B strep is, um, you know, when women are found to have group B strep during pregnancy, they they get treated. Uh, but if they're penicillin allergic, what's the alternative? Clindamycin. About 15 to 20% of group B streps are resistant to clindamycin now. So it's really, I, really problematic. I, I have been fighting the, I think I have a penicillin allergy war now for a year and a half. And I, I actually complained to our system's allergy testing department because they had a, like a four-month yeah. backlog trying to get people in for testing. So for a qual you can really make the argument on a quality basis yep. that penicillin allergy testing is a critical service to provide. People who have delabeling of their penicillin allergy get better care. I mean, there's all kinds of bad correlations with having penicillin allergy on your chart, and that penicillin skin testing is extremely accurate. It's accurate, but, um, and it appears to be very safe, but Incredible. most of us in primary care do not have a crash cart sitting around the no, corner. Yes, right, exactly. So and so we don't feel comfortable doing it in the office, and it yeah. thus leaves us at the... At the whole, you're, you're at the, your allergy, your, your clinical allergy service, if they're not geared up to do this, yeah. you might have to wait a long time. And there's no other alternative. We can't throw it, a little amoxicillin under their tongue and <laughs> pray. <laughs> Nine, one. So, so... Pretend you didn't hear what he just said. No, don't do that. That's right. So, so um, we have a very kind of uh, well-oiled machine in our clinical allergists. It, there is often a wait because it's not usually not an emergency. The key to doing it is doing it in non-emergent times. When you see that new patient and says penicillin allergy, and you say, "What was your allergy?" They say, "I don't know. You know, my mother told me I was allergic. Mm -hmm. I, you know, have you ever received penicillin or amoxicillin?" No, I don't think so. And then, then those are the people. Ninety-eight percent of those people will not be allergic to penicillin. I was shocked recently. I sent someone for this testing, and it came with, and it came with positive. <laughs> like, but that was important to know also. It could also be in the realm of false positives, too, so, so. it's yeah. not perfect. So, All right, clindamycin resistance. That's, well, that's bad, I know. Um, uh, is there any research on this one I didn't know, Manuka honey regarding MRSA? So there are um, wound care specialists mm -hmm. who say that certain forms of honey help for encourage granulation tissue and topically. healing topically. Yes. Okay. Yes. And by the way, if you're a um, if you're an infectious disease doctor and you hear questions about honey, it's usually about that, mm. or it's about 
another very serious infection that can be Botulism. transmitted by honey. Botulism? He passed his test. But, yeah, but yeah. that's only in under age one, right? Yeah. Okay. So. Wow. <laughs> Got that one on the boards. Okay. Um, nasal uh, carriage of MRSA? So nasal carriage of MRSA is completely uh, irrelevant to someone's health unless they actually clinically have MRSA. Okay. Uh, I recently had a very, an outpatient ID consult that was very short because a person was found to have a nasal colonization with MRSA during a hospitalization. And so that's something that we do in our ICUs mm -hmm. to, you know, to prevent spread of MRSA. And then she was scheduled to see me in follow-up and I said, how are you? And she said, fine. And I said, do you know why you're here? And she said, it's some test I had during the hospital. And I said, yep, but it doesn't have any implications for you whatsoever. So. <laughs> I mean, it, it, really, it really doesn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing is, is that it, it could have implications if down the road she gets an infection, then you'd want to know that she had MRSA. But person who's asymptomatic should not be treated. I fear my sense of humor has affected the audience's questions. <laughs> Isn't azithromycin the antibiotic of choice for the patient who doesn't need antibiotics? <laughs> That's a great question. Yes. Um, so so, so can I, if I can just uh, oh. comment a little bit about azithromycin. So <clears throat> azithromycin, I'm old enough to remember, you and I are very similar age, yes. uh, to remember when azithromycin came out. And when azithromycin came out, I remember it came out in this, in this weird form where you got this uh, pack where you took two pills on the first day and then one pill for the next four days. And initially, because it was so expensive, patients who got this like, thought they were being cheated. Right. Right? They wanted more. They wanted Second more. Round. And then... That it was so heavily marketed and so widely used that it became ingrained in their heads that that's the treatment of choice for all infections. Sure. So they would ask for it by name, and it was intensely marketed also to pediatric populations. So as a result, because of widespread use of azithromycin in particular, to a lesser extent clarithromycin, azithromycin is much less active against community pathogens than it used to be. So pneumococcus now, 50% azithromycin resistant. So that wasn't the case at all when it first came out. So there's been a real downside about our very aggressive use of azithromycin. The other thing about azithromycin is ID doctors use it for completely different indications. Oh, I always tell people it's the drug of choice for chlamydia. For chlamydia. And so if you have chlamydia, yes, I'll be happy to give you azithromycin, yeah. but I thought you had a runny nose. So, so. another, another Another quiz for the audience is yeah. what other treatment, what, what else is the treatment of choice for? What else is the treatment of chancroid? Is so azithromycin. Is it? It is. And the wow, other. that just came out of my okay. brain. Another, no another, one? another one? Another one? What? So tra traveler's diarrhea? Ab absolutely. Someone else said it. Non-tuberculous mycobacteria, the oh, most wow. active drugs by far, if, there's, if the organism's susceptible, M. avium complex mm -hmm. and those, if they're susceptible, the macrolides are key. So one thing that we really try to avoid in our COPDers, or people with structural lung disease, is for them to get too much azithromycin because we may need to use it down the road to treat their pulmonary non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Oh, uh, just while we're on this course, I know clarithromycin has this worry about, is it cardiac arrhythmia? Yes. And does azithromycin have the same one? Yes, to, the, to a smaller degree. Clarithromycin definitely prolongs the QT interval and has, in clinical studies, been associated with an excess risk of cardiovascular death. Um, azithromycin in some studies has, but not to the same degree. Wow. Not a placebo, after all. <laughs> Interesting. We had two questions about what, are the, what, what role, if any, is there for using oral steroids 
in the treatment of upper respiratory tract infections, sinusitis, and acute bronchitis. Maybe the best question, way to answer that is, what, what else can we do for our patients for what appears to be non-antibiotic-related infections? Yeah, so, so it is true that steroids do improve some of the symptoms associated with viral respiratory infections. Um, the question is, is it worth the steroids side effects mm -hmm. that do occur, and anyone who's you know in practice a while and has an elderly patient has seen them go crazy on steroids, or their diabetes goes wildly out of control, or something. And then long-term steroid use, of course, has many consequences. So in general, for the respiratory tract infections, we don't recommend it, and that's a typical ID doctor recommendation. But I understand that it does make people feel better. One setting where we do use it is in cases of severe mono. Um, this is much more a student and teenage thing than an adult thing, but the bad EBV-associated mononucleosis with giant tonsils, difficulty swallowing, uh, steroids are like miraculous in improving the symptoms, and they should not, people should not leave the office without getting steroids because, because otherwise they can actually get dehydrated or even obstruct airway. How long? Is it five days of 60 milligrams a day for a kid it's, with bad mono? It's, it's a very short course, three to five days, something like that. It really works. <laughs> I, uh, I recently have been very, very busy at work, working late at night and early in the morning. And a few years back, I was on or a short course of oral steroids. And my wife's like, are you taking that prednisone again? <laughs> I said, no, I'm just behind with work, dear. Uh, no, it, it, it uh, sleep. Yeah. Very, very disruptive to sleep. Um, would you just remind us of the appropriate treatment for a community-acquired pneumonia in healthy adults? Mm. The guidelines just came out, and they recommend uh, using uh, like um, a beta-lactam plus a macrolide, both, or or a beta-lactam alone, mm -hmm. or um, they still include a respiratory fluoroquinolone mm -hmm. as a, as an option. Um, all of those are reasonable. They all work pretty well. Doxycycline, they all work quite well. Can doxycycline be used alone since it covers the atypicals as well as... So it de probably depends on the age. If you strongly suspect it's a pneumococcal pneumonia, I would probably not use doxycycline alone, even though there is one randomized clinical trial showing that it was okay because doxycycline in vitro doesn't have activity against a lot of the pneumococcal, pneumococcal infections. Um, so, so those are, there's plenty of options. The, the community-acquired pneumonia guidelines just came out, and I, they give you a lot of choices, and so it's, it's, ac it's actually quite, quite good. It does worry me, though, that they're, they're recommending a beta-lactam plus a macrolide. It just seems like we're begging yeah. community-acquired C. diff to come visit. Uh, could, could be. One, one thing about doxycycline, a uh, little-known yep. fact, which is you know, the ID doctor's favorite antibiotic is doxycycline, Doxycycline is probably protective against C. diff. You hardly ever see a case of C. diff after doxycycline, and people receiving doxycycline don't really get C. diff, ever. I, I always tell patients I'll use doxycycline because if they're worried about Lyme disease, we're killing two <laughs> birds with one stone. Um, a really good point. Uh, transgender patients, they good candidates for PrEP? Excellent. Other, other thoughts so, so, about so, those? So, so tran trans uh, women are... Uh, one of the populations at the highest risk of contracting HIV, and they are excellent candidates for PrEP. There is some misinformation circulating in the trans community that Truvada alters um, levels of hormones, and therefore people shouldn't use it. Uh -huh. That is actually not true, not felt to be clinically relevant in any way. 
Um, since we're back on the prep, I, I finally went yeah. back to the other page. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit more about the four pill option prior sure. to intercourse? So basically, it's for people who uh, anticipate that they are going to have an exposure. They take two pills uh, a day before, uh, of one pill the next day, and one pill the next day. So it's two, one, one over a period of three days. If they have exposures during that two, one, one period, which sometimes happens, then they extend the treatment. So they take it daily until they're no longer at risk. And a good follow-up to that was, is there any chance from using it intermittently that you'll increase the risk of resistance? So far, the resistance cases have been as follows. Remember, this, this treatment, uh, prevention treatment, PrEP, is two drugs, and we often need three drugs to suppress the virus. So there have been two contexts where we've seen PrEP and resistance. One is in people who stop taking PrEP, as I mentioned, get infected, and then resume so that's bad. That's bad. Okay. The other is people who are not identified by their providers as having HIV at baseline because they'll look in the record and say, oh, you tested negative three months ago. Yes, let's go ahead. But they've now acquired right. HIV in the interval or they've acquired it so recently that their fourth generation test is negative and they need a viral load. Well, let's follow up on that. How soon after an exposure will the fourth generation test turn positive? So it shortens the window period down to like... Three, two to three weeks, very well, short. Yeah, but that's still a lot of time for it trouble. It still is a lot of time, which is why if someone says that I have had a lot of ongoing risk, mm -hmm. you check the viral load at baseline also. That pretty much rules it out. Okay. I wish it could say 100%, but it doesn't. It's still, still a seven-day window period for that. So yeah, I know. <laughs> there's um, no 100% no 100 no perfect test. But, but right. I, you know, I, I, I have very low threshold for ordering that as the baseline assessment if the person has a lot of ongoing risk. Uh, back to the va influenza vaccine, why do people perceive themselves as getting ill after receiving the vaccine? Mm. Two reasons. Uh, one is that people get the vaccine during respiratory virus season. Um, just as, you know, you're starting to see more cases as the weather changes, where I am, uh, <laughs> where, we, where we are. Um, so so they, get a, they get the flu vaccine and then one to two weeks later they get a bad cold and they say, oh, See, it happened again. Right. All right. The other reason is that it's true. I mean, the flu vaccine does, when looking at placebo trials, the people who get the flu vaccine get some symptoms that are more than placebo. Usually it's nonspecific achiness. It's not influenza. You know, they just feel a little achy. And many That's of you have gotten the flu vaccine. Yeah, their yeah. immune system is active. Exactly. All right. Things you didn't talk about. Um, antibiotic of choice for a hydradenitis. So um, hydradenitis is a uh, combination autoimmune and infectious disease. And the best treatment for hydradenitis is, interestingly, immune suppression. So immune suppressive drugs of various sorts, like tacrolimus, sirolimus, cyclosporin, yeah. and others. The chances of us getting that through um, a prescription without a significant prior authorization, I would assume, would be you, challenging. So people with true hydradenitis should see a specialist. Maybe, yeah. They, they, they should see a dermatologist who's comfortable with this condition, not, not a dermatologist who only does Botox. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Not that there's anything wrong with that, so yes. <laughs> so because this is, this this is, is a, a systemic illness. Right that does not respond just to antibiotics. Right. If you do have someone with hydrogenitis who gets an acute infection, 
most of the time it's from staff and strep. Mm -hmm. And you can collect a culture and figure out whether they've got MRSA or not. And so it depends on based on the culture results. In the world of primary care, nothing is more exciting than a call from someone in an assisted living facility with your patient who has um, greater than 10 to the fifth bacteria in their urine that was obtained for some reason not in your uh, control, and now they want to know what antibiotic to use, what to do. Yes. Well, should you treat it? Yes. And what are the indications? How do you decide something's asymptomatic bacteriuria versus a true infection? So, um, really tough clinical problem. Cle <laughs> yes. What? Yes. Clear clearly, for this is how we typically see it in the hospital. Someone is transferred over from the skilled nursing facility to the inpatient wards with some alteration in their clinical status, mm -hmm. and the only abnormality we're able to find is that they have bacteria in their urine, and that seems like, oh, let's hang our hat on that because we found something. Right. In exactly. fact, uh, it may not be the cause of this person's mental status changes mm -hmm. or decreased ambulation. Uh, so it's good to try to pin down whether they're having symptoms or not. One thing that is clear from the latest guidelines is that change in odor alone is not an indication for treatment of bacteria, okay? Try to communicate that as clearly as possible to clinicians the world over and to patients who sometimes come in and say, I've noticed a change in the odor of my urine and the culture's positive. Do something about it. Right. Not a good idea because right. then you end up in this cycle of ever-increasing antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. These are the populations that get the most resistance in the community are people getting treated for recurrent UTIs. Very tough. It, it is. Um, in this region in particular, cases of dengue are back around. Oh. Yeah, dengue fever is a tropical infection. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's in the tropics all over the world. It doesn't matter where you are in the tropics. It's, you know, the, the uh, 80s mosquito, which is not the one, you know, with the Walkman carrying around listening to Duran Duran, <laughs> 80s, A-E-D-E-S. Yes, got you. I got yeah. you. Very funny. Okay. Huh? <laughs> Dr. Seeing whether they're still with me. I know. So, I'm so listening. That's, I'm uh, just... So it's, it's, it's basically, a, you know, there's no treatment for it, and there's recently been, there's a controversial vaccine. Mm -hmm. The vaccine does prevent cases of severe illness, uh, but there is a possible some slight risk of immune augmentation, and that's still being sorted out. Okay. Um, There's no antiviral therapy. No. Anything new with other, with tick, other tick-borne diseases, Lyme, anaplasmosis, yeah. and its cousins? So um, in New England, once the warm weather hits, in yep. particular, we see, when we see a febrile adult, especially a previously healthy adult with fever in the summertime, Frank and I would consider treating that person empirically for one of these tick-borne illnesses because there are so few fevers in adults that happen like this. A typical story will be, you know, an otherwise healthy middle-aged man or woman who does a lot of gardening or golfing or hiking, and they come in, they say, I have a fever of 103, shaking chills, headache, I feel terrible. You know, that to us is a tick-borne infection until sure. proven otherwise. That may not be the case here in Florida. I don't right. think it is. Uh, so, so for those patients, doxycycline fortunately treats both Lyme disease and, a, and anaplasmosis, mm -hmm. which are the two most common causes of these tick-borne illnesses. The less common one, the least common is, not least common, but is, is uh, babesiosis, right. but that one it would have to be diagnosed on a blood smear or a PCR, and that's a different treatment. And then there's another one now called powassan. Powassan is a viral encephalitis, 
that's very severe and has been increasing over the past five to 10 years in our region of the country and it's related to ticks. There's no treatment for that. Isn't that fun? No. <laughs> All right, last question, which is, I think is a fantastic question. Please remind us again about who needs um, oral prophylaxis if they have a contact with someone who's got it, has influenza. Okay. So, um, very good question. And by the way, the only drug approved now for prophylaxis is oseltamivir. Oh, good. Veloxivir is probably going to get approval for this as well, and maybe in a shortened duration. If you are uh, a person at high risk for influenza complications, and you are someone who has not received the flu vaccine, right? Both characters, yep. Then you should receive preventive therapy, and that is oseltamivir once a day for a week after the last exposure, okay? If you are extremely worried about getting the flu and you're not in those categories and you really twist your doctor's arm, yes. you might be able to get it as well. Okay. Uh, and I recently had <laughs> experience of a, a woman very busy in her work. She has two children, both of whom got the flu. She's supposed to go on this big tr trip to present data at some meeting. And I thought, all right. It's reasonable, yeah. not crazy. But the flu vaccine is good enough. You should not have to give preventive therapy. The other context is in very closed congregate settings, nursing homes where people really are not going outside. Mm -hmm. And there, if there's a, f a case of the flu, then often everyone in the facility is treated. So those are the settings. I think that was a fantastic uh, session. Thank you very much, Paul. Okay. That was absolutely great. Thank you.